Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Bounty episode of the Day Zero Podcast. I'm Spectre with me as Z. Today, we have the top 10 web hacking techniques of 2022, a little bit of uh, drama coming out of the uh, the InfoSec tooling community, as well as a Binance uh, vulnerability. Um, so, yeah, we'll jump into those in a minute. Uh, for those of you that were doing the spot the vuln, we'll cover the solution tomorrow, as always. And, uh, yeah, we'll jump into Port Swigger's topic on uh, the top 10 web hacking techniques 2022. So, yeah. We've covered one or two of these before, I believe. Um, I think they've been doing it for like three or four years running now. It's a post that Portsquare likes to do in the new year, talking about the cool research they've seen from the previous year. Um, you can like nominate things and they vote on it and whatnot. It's it's a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool concept. Out of curiosity, and, uh, did you vote this year? No, I didn't. Did uh, you? Yes, I did. Ah, okay. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's basically like a bit of a survey on, you know, what's been seen in the web space in terms of research. So, of course, we, we don't plan to go through all 10 of them, um, but a fair number of them are things that we actually saw on the podcast. Um, so like number 10, for example, uh, they have the Netlify uh, Universal XSS that we covered on episode 165. Number seven was the Akamai Edge Node cache poisoning attacks, which we talked about in episode 155. Um, so yeah, there's a few of them mixed in there that we've, we've talked about too. Um, yeah, I mean, we've talked about most of them on here, uh, nine and eight were both also things we covered. I don't have the episode numbers for that. Uh, six, I think the only ones we didn't cover are bypassing .NET serialization binders. Um, I don't think we covered the Zimbra email one at number Zimbra, three either. Yeah, Zimbra, and also actually number one we didn't cover, which was account hijacking using Dirty Dancing. Um, I believe all three of those uh, came out during the summer while we were on our break. They did. Yeah. Um, so that's at least part of why they didn't make our make our episodes. Um, I will recommend though, especially this number one is a really solid post talking about some just other ways of. Uh, pulling out or uh, uh, leaking, leaking the OAuth tokens. Um, similar to topic we had last week with the SSO gadgets, uh, or at least they have some ground, some shared ground. Really solid post there from Franz Rosen. If you're familiar with the name, or if you're not familiar, you should be with a lot of his work. Um, we've definitely covered them before, so. Definitely a solid post. Um, IAPR's asking, sure you didn't cover Zimbra. I could swear I saw a podcast on it. I'm quite sure we didn't. I remember seeing this. I, I mean, I guess this one came out during the summer. Um, so I do remember looking at this one. and I, It might have been when I was trying to scan for things to cover um, on like our first episode back and the things we liked. I think I might have seen it there, but ultimately I don't think this one made the cut for that. Yeah. Uh, and then number two as well was uh, one that we really liked. Uh, number two was browser power desync attacks. And that's by Portswigger's very own James Kettle. Um, and there's a talk, I think it was from DEF CON that we did a, a watch party of as well that, did a really good job of breaking it down and and showing like how it worked. Uh, the blog post was fairly dense, but it's also like pretty accessible and, and goes through everything step by step. So yeah, um, the browser power desync attacks was one that we really liked. And 
yeah, kind of makes sense. It's coming in at number two there. Um, but yeah, like the main reason we wanted to bring up this post is just that it serves as a really good like reference point to be able to see other research that you might have missed or just be able to link off to it in case you want to refresh yourself on it or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, when you look at it like this, there there was a lot of cool research in 2022, uh, more so than like 2021 and 2020, I feel like. But maybe that's just recency bias. But yeah, uh, a lot of cool research in here. They do some quick summaries of them, but of course, if you want to learn more about them, you can you can go ahead and click through them and, and read the original posts. They also state that uh, there's a lot more that they thought was cool that couldn't fit into the top 10. So they do also link off to their the entire nomination list. So you can check out some other stuff through there as well. But yeah, uh, as always, you know, a pretty cool post by Portswigger, and it, it does a good job of summarizing the the different kinds of research that came out over the last little while. So yeah, yeah I don't, it's uh, worth checking out. Personally, I'd have really liked to have seen the, uh, I think it's on the nomination list here, the great same site confusion post having also made this list. Um, it was nominated, but didn't make the list. I don't know. Personally, like when I was voting on this, I was thinking about it largely on the focus of like techniques that are going to apply elsewhere. So that's where posts like the practical client side, path traversal attacks come in, or uh, the OAuth thing, where those are things you can start applying elsewhere. Um, whereas hacking the cloud with SAML, really cool attack. I mean, really fun. Uh, technically, kind of a web thing, but you know, it gets to injecting like the arbitrary bytecode. Um, kind of very low level issue there. I think it was like an integer overflow or truncation thing that happened, or it, it was a one of the things getting injected was truncated because it was beyond the max size. Um, but if, either way, like, you know, that only really applies in the one scenario, whereas some of these other things have a much wider applicability. That said, I mean, everybody votes on it. They kind of decide on or narrow it down from the last 15. Um, I have some disagreements, but ultimately there there was a lot of good stuff this year. Or last year, I guess. All right. So uh, we'll move into a little bit of the drama that we mentioned at the top of the episode, which came out of TruffleSec. So TruffleSec um, took over the XSS Hunter project after the original maintainer stopped working on it uh, and launched their own like managed instance of it. Um, and XSS Hunter seemed like kind of a cool tool. I've never really used it, but um, it, it'll, it can do like automatic payload generation, manage XSS probes and things like that. Um, you know, kind of like just what you kind of expect in a red teaming tool, I guess. Uh, but what got people talking about it was the fact that uh, TruffleSec's Twitter account last week posted some stats about things that people were finding with XSS Hunter, um, saying there had been over, you know, a thousand XSS reports with some Git directory exposed and others with cloud credentials exposed, as well as a bunch of cores issues, uh, which, you know, it seems like they're collecting quite a bit of information on the usage of the tool and doing a lot more tracking than they let on. Um, and we thought we'd take the opportunity to talk a little bit about privacy when it comes to security tooling. Um, maybe not go so much into the drama. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess I will mention that Truffle Security responded saying that uh, you know, users of XSS Hunter would accidentally send data back to the platform and they wanted to, like, bring awareness to it or something. I don't know. I think it was more of a, an excuse and just trying to throw something out there as opposed to a legitimate response. But I did want to mention it since they did do it. But 
Um, yeah, I mean, something like privacy when it comes to security tooling and your vulnerabilities getting leaked is something that's been talked about a decent bit, but mostly in speculation. Um, you often don't really have like concrete examples of it very often. But I mean, we don't have yeah. concrete examples, but it has long been the practice, you know, to self-host toolings with things that are receiving like callbacks. Um, so that's the thing with Excess Hunter, like. Uh, this is used especially with like blind XSS testing. You might send out a payload. Um, you don't know when it's going to get executed. And then you get the callback from like some random website. Um, and that probe, if you're using XSS Hunter, lands to them. And then they expose it back over to you. Um, you don't necessarily have a lot of examples of it very specifically being used. But at the same time, it's been a standard practice. Like... I remember when uh, Burp Suite came out with the collaborator uh, and there's discussion at my workplace over whether or not we should use it or could even use it. And I mean, very strong opinions were on the side of like, no, it's a hosted thing. We're not going to expose or send information about any vulnerabilities of our clients to a third party, even if it is just Burp or whatever it's still exposing that information to the third party. So I feel like almost any consulting shop out there would already not be using Excess Hunter in this way. Maybe self-hosting it, of course, um, keeping it in-house and getting all that. But there's just the fact that you are sending that information, regardless of whether or not they're looking at it. It's still being sent over to a third party that isn't necessarily trusted. Is like You have no agreement with them to non-disclosure or anything of that sort. Um, so with bug bounty, it doesn't matter as much because you're not held to as much of a non-disclosure. Some platforms definitely have uh, statements about what you can disclose or when you can disclose and such. But And some actually even indicate they want you to self-host your tools and you can't use these tooling. Um, that's not super common, but it's definitely there. As I understand, it's more common on private bounties, but not really my area of experience. So I can't speak to how common that is. But it is something that, like, it's been a well-known thing that, you know, even if they're not searching for it, you're still sending that information to a third party. You're still disclosing it. Um, so I'd have, I come down pretty hard on, like, not using a lot of these third parties without having a good, reasonable, I guess, trust of them. Um, there are those tools that actually kind of make it their business to appeal to those corporate clients, in which case they likely have a much stronger stance when it comes to the privacy, whereas, as we can see with Excess Hunter, clearly somebody was taking the deeper look at that. And yeah, I mean, um, travel security, I, I'll kind of change topics a little bit. Uh, travel security's uh, statement here was we posted some anonymized stats about Excess Hunter, similar to HackerOne's public anonymized reports. I think the key difference there is that um, Hacker One, one, it, they do disclosures. Like, that is their thing, and they get the permission of those, like, uh, of their clients to actually participate and, you know, use their information like that. Whereas TroubleSec just like, hey, you're using our tool, therefore we get the information. Uh, in chat, Garlic0x539 mentions. Not surprising, considering they purchased an open-source tool just to get the user base. You, I don't know what necessarily the evidence is when it comes to 
whether or not they had the malicious intent there, or if this was... Because I could see this having gone two ways. They're a security company. Could they have started this up just as like in-house? Hey, we use this tool. They're shutting down. Let's just stand one up for ourselves. And kind of a goodwill ground up starting of it. Um, and then perhaps the fact that they could profit or like use some intelligence from it came up later, or if that was their intent from the start. I don't really know. I can imagine this coming up in a fairly decent way that doesn't imply kind of like the malicious intent from the start. So I don't want to necessarily say that they did it specifically because they wanted the user base, but um, I haven't dug a ton onto that side of the drama. So, Yeah, nonetheless, though, like the, the statement you were talking about with being similar to HackerOne's public anonymized reports, like, yeah, I, I don't really think that's a good comparison. Um, it's very different, like, uh, responsibility. Like, when you report something to Hacker One, you kind of know that that's going to be looked at uh, and collated. Like, that's the point of it, kind of like what you were saying. Um, so, yeah, it's not really a similar situation. I don't think that's a, a fair, like, uh, you know, thing to point to for, in, in this kind of situation. But, yeah, it's a I mean, even if you're... agreement, too. Like, the bug hunters yeah. using XSS Hunter, they don't necessarily have... Um, like any sort of NDA, but they haven't really entered an agreement to disclose their bugs to XSS Hunter, although they are using it. There is the implied kind of thing going on there. Uh, whereas with Hacker One, like there is some sort of explicit agreement between like the vendors that are on Hacker One having their program managed through Hacker One. That like the whole client relationship is very different and feels very different to me. Yeah. Uh, and while like you were talking about it mostly from like a corporate and, um, you know, like firm, like infosec firm perspective, um, and it is something to be wary of if you're an independent researcher, too, even if you're you're not doing a private bounty that specifies you can't use third party tooling. Um, it's just, you know, in your best interest to try to use things that are that are more isolated off uh, where you can. So, yeah, it's it's a good reminder of that, I guess. Um, not too much more to say on that. It was just a bit of like back and forth, but uh, yeah, it, it did blow up quite a bit. So we figured we'd talk about it. And yeah, it, it's something that we don't really get to talk about super often. Cause like I said, you don't really see too many instances um, of, you know, access to that data being abused, but it is totally possible. I'd yeah. I mean, usually the companies that probably do this, keep it pretty quiet that they're doing it. Um, so realistically, what they've said here is that there are like 20 or, well, 35 O-days here, um, or, you know, 100 plus O-days that they've looked at and kind of have some details on. Because ultimately, like, if they're hitting XS Hunter, these aren't patched vulnerabilities that they're even kind of leaning towards. Um, yeah. Granted, they don't give anywhere near enough information for that to be leveraged in any way, but, you know, the person who collected that information... Uh, very well, you know, they have more insights than what they share, basically, and somebody is taking a look into that. Yeah. All right, so moving into some vulnerabilities, uh, from PT Security, we have a Binance uh, smart chain token bridge hacking post. Uh, this is talking about the, uh, the October uh, BSC token hub bridge compromise, which led to, I think it was like... Uh, like $600 million of uh, Binance BNB currency being stolen. And uh, yeah, I'll let you get into this one, Z. Yeah, and 
I'll also mention this has a bunch of blockchain background in it about like how their verifications work, how like Merkle proofs work and stuff. Ultimately, kind of what matters with this vulnerability is you have what's effectively a balanced binary search tree. Uh, so what that kind of means, first of all, binary search tree. Um, if you're familiar with the concept of linked list, uh, kind of has some similarities. Like it's one of those basic, uh, or sorry, just the binary tree. Um, is just one of those basic fundamental data structures or abstract data structures. Um, you have your node in the tree. It has two branches off from it, left and a right branch. Um, uh, and each of those branches point to another node, which has its left and right branch. And it's just like a tree that you can navigate that way. A search tree has a little bit of ordering in it. Um, for example, the left branch may always be lower value than the value of that node. So each node stores its own value too, in addition to pointers off. Um, or And the right node then would be a higher value. So you can kind of search it by looking, oh, it's lower. If you're looking for a number, oh, this one's lower. So you go left branch, then, oh, it's higher than this one, right branch. And you can find your way where you need to go. Um, just more efficient. And then balanced uh, is just an indication of the fact that you're not going to have like 10 layers down to the left, but only one on the right. Like they kind of keep a balance. There's a bit of an algorithm behind that. Won't really get into it. What matters though is the way that you validate uh, any of the transactions that are going to exist at some point. Well, they're going to exist being inserted as like a leaf node in the tree. And you basically just compare the hash. So if any node, um, its hash is going to be the hash of its, um, I believe it's the left and the right blocks beneath it. Um, and so you can basically start from one block, look at its parent, okay, left and right, get the hash. Um, does the hash match? Then, okay, it has been modified. And you go up the chain all the way up to the root, basically comparing these hashes all the way up. So if you want to make any change anywhere in the tree, all of the hashes would need a change. Um, and so that kind of prevents you from tampering with the tree after it's actually been confirmed. Uh, so what's going on with this whole post is you've got uh, a bridge between two blockchains. You've got the BSC token hub bridge. Um, or Well, the bridge is acting as like an intermediary between two different blockchains. Um, and you've got relayers in there who take an event from one chain and kind of transfer it or let things know about what happened on the other chain. So transferring it over to another chain. The bug here comes into just that whole verification process. Um, when a relayer gets a new transaction, they verify that it actually happened and like everything looks good before sending it off uh, to the other chain who basically ends up trusting that. Um, but in the verification process, what they do here is they look that I've now pulled up the code. Sorry for those of you who are only listening, but um, the code itself that's actually doing the verification process effectively just looks here. If the pin on the left, so if the left branch is zero, so there is no uh, child there, basically, it basically only takes the right or the right side of it. And then there's, so if left pin zero, uh, then there's the else block. And in the else block, what's interesting is it doesn't take the left and the right and the right block. It only takes the left block. 
Uh, so what ends up happening is in that case where you have only a left um, entry, it never actually looks at the hash of the right entry. Um, so incorrectly validates it, saying like, oh, it's fine. They don't validate that the uh, right side is correct. Um, they just validate that the left side's correct. Uh, so any transaction that's put onto that right side of it, um, in this case, would basically just get accepted. And that's what the attackers did here. They used a legitimate transaction that was used just to transfer uh, this 0.05 BNB from the BSC bridge. Um, they changed the amount to be a million and made it go to the attacker saying just injected that in on the right side of one of the of one of the nodes. Um, injected this old one, made the changes. It trusted it and just sent it off, doing the complete transfer. And then they tried that a couple, a few more times, um, missing. Uh, so there is some other metadata that I am just glossing completely over here. But they do mention that uh, the attackers tried to repeat that transaction, uh, but the next fifteen times were unsuccessful because they forgot to uh, set or set the correct package sequence value, which is. Every time something new comes in, there's a sequence value as part of the transaction. There's a lot of details that I have lost over here. Um, I apologize for that, but I feel like the most interesting thing is really just this core bug where you've got the left and right channels and just doing an incorrect validation because on its own, like it's a simple bug. Like it almost feels like somebody just copied and pasted code and didn't really think about the logic of it, but just, oh, you know, else I'm doing the right side or else I'm doing the left side. Like, kind of just treating it like that, maybe not thinking about it, but since it works, generally speaking, um, and then a lot of test cases, like, they're probably not testing that particular edge case. It's just an interesting bug to see, and it is something that doesn't have a very clear security implication until you end up in this scenario where that check is the security implication or is the security enforcement. Uh, it's a pretty subtle bug, I'd say. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. So that that's what makes it really interesting. Uh, I do like how they go into a bit of the detail on you know how the attack took place and some of the difficulties that uh, that the attackers ran into there. Uh, I thought that that was some cool information. Talking about the the incorrect package sequence value being used, uh, and then talking about how they they did the laundering and stuff. Obviously, that's outside of you know what we typically cover, but it's a nice little uh, point in there that you can look at if you're interested. Um, it's a good post. Like, just on a whole, they yeah. cover things really well. Like I said, I glossed over a ton of details. So if you're kind of listening to us and a little bit lost, there's a lot of details that they go into in this post and cover it a lot better than I could do. Part of that's just because I'm not super well-versed when it comes to uh, the crypto bugs. But I am, however, familiar with the abstract data types. <laughs> I think they did a really good job of breaking down um, like how blockchain works as it refers to this vulnerability. Because um, I've seen a lot of like really complicated explanations where people are like, they try to read through it and they're just like, what? Like, I still don't understand it. But like the diagrams that they have at the top here in the background they cover, uh, it's it's very like easy to digest and it, it gives you a good idea of why the vulnerability matters, um, which... Yeah, like when when it comes to cryptocurrency and smart contracts and stuff, uh, that is 
a lot more challenging uh, to cover in your post is to make it accessible to people who aren't familiar with the ecosystem. But I think this post does a really good job of that. So, yeah, it's awesome to see. All right. So, uh, yeah, we'll get into our next vulnerability here, which is a insecure path join in Cardex M-Log, which is like uh, logistics tracking software. Um, and it was found partially via finding uh, through the Nessus Vuln scanner. Um, so they ran the Nessus Vuln scanner and found uh, that on one of the web services that Cardex M-Log runs, uh, there was a path traversal type issue where you could get uh, the Windows uh, win.ini file with a simple path traversal payload. Um, and it was kind of interesting because they went diving into the code and they found that the get file handler would do some checking on, you know, the first like slug value that's passed in. Um, so, you know, it would check for an API slug and if it wasn't present, it would then fall back on trying to check for like an image slug. Um, and if that wasn't present, it would fall back to the special handling where if no path was given, it would just direct to the index page. And if there was data given, it would join the root directory to whatever you passed in to construct a file name. Uh, and, you know, they would try to replace like forward slashes and whatever to in, in an attempt to sanitize. The problem is, though, on Windows, the path separator is a backslash, uh, which they don't really consider. Um, so, yeah, it's just kind of that scenario where, you know, Linux forward slashes, Windows backslashes, the path separator confusion, confusion which we've seen before. Um, so yeah, it would replace forward slashes, but not the backward slashes. Furthermore, you could also use this to get remote paths included um, because with Windows, you could do uh, like a double backslash and then an IP and yeah, you could get like a remote file inclusion type issue. Um, turns out taking this to RCE was fairly easy as if the MIME type of the file was T4, uh, which they just checked through the file extension, uh, it would get processed through the template engine and basically turn into a server-side template injection which that template engine supported the ability to just run C-sharp code. So yeah, you could just set up an attacker file that had uh, a malicious template with C-sharp code in it and, and get it included in. So fairly simple how it was taken advantage of, but yeah, um, it's a little bit interesting how that issue happened. I feel like that that get file handler is just way too like, I mean, I, I say it a lot, but like it, it seems like it's trying to do too much um, and you know, one of the edge cases just ended up coming back to bite them here because they didn't consider the path separators. Yeah, I don't entirely agree with you that it's trying to do too much. Like, the core on get is really simple. It is only checking if API. Otherwise, it just passes it along to get file. And then get file starts doing a bit more because get file is where it actually starts looking at, well, you know, is the path, um, should it add index or uh, what should it do in? It's not doing that much here either. It's checking for a root being indexed, or it's uh, basically just adding the cultural uh, value. So, like, you know, ENUS or something like that uh, makes sense I mean, to kind of direct things down that path. Uh, mainly, what I was trying to get at there was just saying that, like, I feel like that is a bit of the dangerous functionality to even have, though, um, to try to, you know, fall back on doing the file this like i don't know i feel like there's better ways of doing it most I guess. web servers fall back to getting like you can provide a direct file name to most web servers and have it load that file oh um, yeah like that's a fairly standard thing like that's how you would get like images would usually be setting like a static folder and resolves it down to the actual file name 
Um, it is also a place where you can have these bugs. Um, and so always trying to implement it yourself instead of relying on something that's done it um, can make a difference there. But like, that's a pretty that, that's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah, it's a pretty standard feature. Um, like, yeah, sorry, I, I should have maybe clarified a little bit um, when I was talking about it. That's kind of where I was trying to go with it, where where it was like, you know, implementing yourself. Uh, implementing this kind of functionality yourself, there is those pitfalls that you have to run into, especially when it comes to building the paths. So, yeah, I mean, on a whole, one of the reasons I want to just include this post is we see a lot of these simple directory traversals, see them all the time, and I don't bother covering them. This one, at least, like it uses goes the backslash. I'm sure most of you haven't forgotten that that is an option to at least try. But it's been a little while since we've talked about doing that and talked about... Um, actually, I guess we have talked about doing the network shares a little bit more recently. Uh, but, you know, remembering that some of these systems are Windows and you can have some fun with that. Yeah, fairly straightforward issue, but... Um, I don't know, kind of a slow week. Yeah. So that's all the topics that we had for the week. I do believe Z has one shout out, which I'll let him get into, and then we'll wrap up the show. Yeah, one shout out from Jew Bobs, uh, who we have covered many times, a lot of times with. Actually, I think I was talking about that great same site confusion post that I want to cover um, back in the top 10. I believe that was one that he wrote. Uh, but anyway, this, uh, what he's gone for here is a. Well, design philosophy for cores middleware library. So handling cores, giving it the configuration, all of that. Uh, but throughout this post, while it is talking a lot about well, the design philosophy of like designing this middleware library that he also implements. Um he also ends up talking about a lot of the failings that can happen. Uh just through either through misconfigurations, um, like there's one section where he's talking about uh which one was it here? Uh, render insecure and configuration impossible. Talking about some of the downfalls of other systems and how they've done things and where things can be problematic. So while the post itself isn't exactly about all of the core's problems, there's a lot of nuggets of truth within here that do apply to security. I mean, the whole thing applies to security. I mean, you can tell as he's got this design philosophy, a lot of this is about having something you know, building something secure and some of the thought and philosophy behind that. Just a really solid post, despite the fact that it's a little bit more developer-oriented, and it's something that I might just overlook a lot of the time. But yeah, I really like this post. All right, so uh, we'll wrap it up there. So as always, thanks everyone who tuned in. Vod uh, will be up on Twitch immediately or on other platforms like YouTube tomorrow. We also have previous podcasts up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more links on Anchor. If you want to join our Discord and follow us on Twitter, links for those are down below or in the chat. And yeah, we'll be back tomorrow with the binary episode. That'll be at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, and we'll see you then.